hearing will come together uh, hopefully this morning and uh, we'll uh, start off. I have a few uh, opening remarks and then I'll uh, yield to uh, Senator Menendez to do likewise. Uh, before we do that, uh, for all of our guests and, uh, and uh, everyone, we're starting early as you can see and we got uh, surprising news from the floor yesterday which doesn't uh, happen uh, regularly but uh, too often and that is we're going to have five votes starting uh, pretty soon. Senator Rubio and I are going to take uh, uh, turns chairing the committee as each of us shuttle back and forth to, uh, to vote, which obviously is one of the most important things uh, uh, that we do. Uh, first of all, I'm pleased to welcome Administrator Mark Green, who brings to the table decades of development uh, experience, uh, a commitment to transparency and accountability, and a firm grasp of the purpose of foreign aid which is to end the need for its existence. Uh, the uh, USAID, the lead development agency charged with advancing the economic, global health, and humanitarian interests of the United States overseas is the subject of our hearing this morning. Under uh, Mr. Green's leadership, uh, USAID is, is undergoing an organizational transformation intended to make the agency more efficient, effective, and adaptable to the 21st century challenges. And there are many challenges and will be many challenges in the 21st century. This uh, transformation includes uh, certain uh, areas of focus. Uh, the first being uh, creating a unified humanitarian assistance bureau, uh, elevating stabilization and resilience programming, and ensuring that innovation cuts across all development sectors. Uh, secondly, bringing on a clear choice coordinator to help identify ways to counter China's malign development model. Uh, thirdly, pursuing procurement reform and an adaptive staffing plan, which if, it, if approved, may help USAID attract and retain needed talent in a more coherent and cost-effective manner. Over the coming year, this committee will examine how USAID and its implementing partners manage these changes. We also will monitor how USAID positions itself to cooperate rather than compete with the new International Development Finance Corporation in catalyzing private sector-led economic growth. Change is understandably difficult, but we should never allow bureaucratic inertia to prevent improvement. USAID has done a lot over the past 58 years to make Americans proud. Yet as we sit in this room, nearly 70 million men, women, and children have been forcibly displaced from their homes, the highest number recorded in modern history. Additionally, an estimated 85 million people in 46 countries will need food uh, aid this year, and the threat of famine persists in Yemen, South Sudan, and Northeast Nigeria. The Ebola outbreak in Congo is spreading, and I think uh, our witness is going to have something to say about that. And, uh, the risks that, uh, that it uh, possesses uh, and, and is to the world. And the Taliban and Boko Haram continue to block polio vaccination efforts in uh, portions, small portions of the world. And corrupt governments, weak institutions, food and water scarcity, pandemic health threats, and economic exclusion are fueling broader insecurity and creating opportunities for extremist groups to exploit vulnerable populations and threaten United States interests. The challenges are daunting and the means to address them are limited. So it is incumbent upon this committee to carefully scrutinize the President's foreign aid budget. The budget must be strategic, 
effective, and aligned with the most pressing national interests of the United States. It must eliminate duplication and waste. It must focus on breaking the chain of de dependency by helping communities help themselves. And it must support a, a workforce at USAID that is capable and adaptive to the challenge we face in 2019, not 1961. In any budget, difficult choices must be made. Investing in US military readiness is a good choice. But undercutting effective diplomacy and development, which can stabilize situations before they spin out of control, disrupt pandemic health threats before they cross our borders, and support the growth uh, of healthier, more stable societies with whom we can trade rather than aid is, is also very, very important, and it is a good choice. Mr. Green, I look forward to working with you over the coming years to ensure that USAID has the tools and the resources it needs to advance USAID's critical mission for America and in the world. With that, I'd like to recognize our ranking member, Senator Menendez, for his opening remarks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, um, and thank you, Administrator, for your service to our country in appearing before the committee this morning. Immense challenges are growing in complexity across the world. But in the face of human suffering created by both natural and man-made disaster, it's baffling and disappointing to receive for the third year in a row a proposal for draconian cuts to our foreign aid budget from previously appropriated levels. It is hard to understand how your agency would effectively operate with the President's budget requests. USAID can and should be playing a critical role. I applaud your commitment to the people of Venezuela, where an entrenched dictatorship has led to state collapse, the spread of violent crime, a humanitarian crisis, and a massive refugee crisis that is undermining regional economic growth and stability. This should be the model, not the exception. Across Africa, the Anglophone crisis in Cameroon has taken the country to the brink of civil war. The Russian government has established a foothold in the Central African Republic, and before Mozambique could begin to recover from Hurricane Idea, Hurricane Kenneth struck. In Syria, without sustained investment into development, we have no hope of truly defeating ISIS. In Afghanistan, what message would it send as we are negotiating a peace deal, one parenthetically about which members of Congress have been kept in the dark about, to cut the U.S. mission in half? I know you know this, but it seems to bear repeating at the outset. Development and humanitarian relief investments through USAID are not charity. These programs and these funds advance U.S. national security while helping to lift up the world's most impoverished and build resilient and prosperous communities that in turn promote global stability. Which is why perhaps the President's March 29th announcement to end all foreign assistance to El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras is again the most illogical we've seen. Over the last two years, the administration has indeed touted the effectiveness of our Central American programs that address the driving factors of migration, programs to promote economic development, the rule of law, and that help confront drug traffickers wrecking violence throughout their communities. Yet the President has requested fewer overall resources and seems to be trying to withhold, reprogram, and claw back unobligated and unexpended funds from both current and prior fiscal years. It is as if the President is deliberately exacerbating the crisis. These kinds of cuts in U.S. presence and investment work directly against our interests, 
including by ceding ground to our adversaries. Nowhere is this more evident than in the advances China is making with its ambitious One Belt, One Road strategy that exploits host nations while entrenching its economic and political reach. Last year, you announced your Clear Choice Initiative to counter China's growing development influence around the world, something I was looking forward to. But so far, I've seen the administration offer nothing meaningful as an alternative to Chinese investment in Africa, Latin America, or elsewhere beyond rhetoric. Cutting the budget for international development by more than 40% is certainly an alternative, but not one that will achieve the outcomes we desire. In fact, I would submit that the administration is providing a clear choice. Turn to China for foreign investment. Fortunately for American interests, Congress has twice rejected the President's budget and program proposals, and I expect we'll do so again. Administrator Green, you're a skilled former ambassador, legislator. You know the value of U.S. international development in promoting democracy and U.S. foreign policy. Your passion for U.S. leadership in delivering humanitarian and disaster assistance are evident. But the administration continues to propose cutting USAID's budget. As the NSC and OMB continue this troubling foreign assistance review that seems nothing more than an effort to slow walk appropriated funds as the F Bureau systematically delays approving spending plans. So from where I sit, the Congress must be more effective in holding the administration accountable for its foreign policy shortcomings and reminding the American people about the importance of ensuring core American values like democracy, governance, and human rights remain essential components of U.S. foreign policy. It is these fundamental values along with America's unparalleled strengths, a military second to none, a vital economy driven by innovation and technological ingenuity, a reservoir of goodwill with our allies and partners that provides us the opportunity to define a new role and a new grand strategy on the global stage for the 21st century. I look forward to today's hearing and hope that we can work together to repair and protect the critical work of your agency. Thank you, Senator Menendez, and uh, now we're going to hear from our witness, Administrator Green, uh, who was sworn in as the 18th Administrator of USAID in August of 2017. Previously, uh, uh, Mr. Green has served as President of the International Republican Institute, President and CEO of the Initiative for Global Development, Senior Director at the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, and U.S. Ambassador uh, to Tanzania from 2007 to 2009. He also served four terms in the United States House of Representatives, representing Wisconsin's 8th District. Ambassador Green holds a law degree from the University of Wisconsin, uh, law and a bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Uh, Mr. Green, I meet with lots and lots and lots of different people, and I can tell you, uh, I was impressed with you as I have with anyone about their commitment and passion for the job that you are undertaking, and more importantly, your pragmatic approach to the kinds of challenges that you face, which are incredibly overwhelming, which anyone would uh, agree to that faces the kinds of things that, uh, that you face. So with that, welcome, and we're um, anxious to hear uh, your message. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee. Uh, I appreciate this opportunity to summarize my testimony, and I do appreciate all the support that we've received from both sides of the aisle. In total, the USAID request for fiscal year 2020 is approximately $19.2 billion. It represents $2.4 billion 
or 14% more than last year's request. It's an attempt to balance fiscal responsibility here at home with our leadership role and national security imperatives around the world. <clears throat> uh, members, in, in order to capture some of the important work that so many of you have referenced, I'd like to touch briefly on a few of my recent travels. I just returned from Ethiopia and Cote d'Ivoire was senior advisor to the president, Ivanka Trump. While there, we met with women le leaders and entrepreneurs to advance the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. We discussed ways to improve the enabling environment for women entrepreneurs and advance issues like access to credit for women entrepreneurs at all levels. Earlier this month, I traveled to Senegal to lead the U.S. delegation to the second inaugural ceremonies for President Macky Sall. Senegal represents what is possible in Africa and elsewhere through a commitment to democracy and inclusive economic growth. A few months ago, I visited South America as we continue to craft policies regarding Venezuela, a country very obviously moving in a different direction. It's no secret that Nicolas Maduro's ruthless regime has destroyed that country's economy and political institutions. Millions of Venezuelans, young mothers with children, have taken desperate flight. The U.S. has responded with over $256 million in assistance for these migrants in their host communities. At the request of Interim President Guaido and working with other countries, we have prepositioned humanitarian assistance in the region for potential delivery into Venezuela. In fact, over 540 metric tons of such assistance, and I'll be heading back down there in just a few days. I've recently visited Jordan, another country where the U.S. is playing a vital humanitarian leadership role. We've been working hard to help reduce strains caused by years of conflict and displacement and to try to ensure that all people in Jordan can access essential services. Last year, I visited Burma and Bangladesh. Bangladesh now hosts one million Rohingya, most of them there because of Burma's ruthless ethnic cleansing campaign. In Bangladesh, we are urging the government to allow humanitarian organizations to provide migrants with a full range of support and services. In Burma, we continue to call on the government to provide for the safe, voluntary and dignified return of Rohingya and other vulnerable communities. While most of our humanitarian assistance goes for man-made, regime-driven crises, we're also responding ter to terrible natural disasters like Cyclone Z-Day in Kenneth, in Mozambique, Malawi, and Zimbabwe. We've already mobilized approximately $70 million in supplies and assistance to help those impacted by the storms. There's also the Ebola outbreak in DRC, where health officials have reported now more than 1,550 confirmed and probable cases, and now over 1,025 related deaths. As I've said previously, we need to be very concerned about this outbreak and the serious challenges it presents. We must not take our eye off this ball. I'm aware of new legislation that was just introduced on the topic, we welcome it and we do really appreciate the committee's interest and leadership on this. It is an important matter. Of course, humanitarian matters are only part of our work. For example, we're working hard to push back on the rising anti-democratic influence of China and Russia. USAID will soon unveil a broad policy framework for countering malign Kremlin influence, especially in Europe and Eurasia. Our 2020 requests 
prioritizes $584 million to support that work. The request also reflects an expansion of our work to help victims of ISIS in the Middle East, especially those targeted for their religious affiliation or ethnicity. We see helping Yazidis and Christians and others as part of defeating the terrorist network once and for all. Closer to home, when I last appeared before you, I provided an overview of our transformation plans. We've made great progress thanks to the support of so many of you, and we appreciate it. I look forward to addressing future questions that you might have as we go forward on this, as we try to address some of the remaining congressional notifications. Finally, and most importantly, I'd like to say a quick word about our most precious asset, our human resources. Our dedicated Foreign Service officers, civil service staff, Foreign Service nationals, and other team members who are truly on the front lines of some of the world's most pressing challenges. We're continuing to staff up and to bring our workforce into greater alignment with strategic planning numbers and available operating expense allocations. We're planning to hire approximately 140 career track foreign service officers before the end of fiscal year 20. We've also approved 221 new civil service positions and have now selected 10 finalists for the Donald M. Payne Fellowship Program. Members, I appreciate your support, your guidance, and your ideas. And Mr. Chairman, thank you again for this opportunity to appear before you. I welcome the opportunity to address questions. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this is an important hearing, and again, I want to stress to all of our guests and uh, witness that uh, as we come and go, please don't take that as uh, any sign that it's not what, what you're saying here and what we're doing here isn't important, but we do have a series of votes that, uh, that all of us are going to have to uh, attend to as we kind of come and go. Um, one of the things that you and I talked about recently that is, is, is alarming uh, is the situation regarding the Ebola outbreak. And uh, by the way, we're going to do a, a, a five-minute round uh, to start with here, and then we'll, we'll go from there. But uh, uh, I want to talk to you for just a minute about that. Well, uh, you, you touched on it briefly in your opening remarks. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about what, just about the time we thought we had a handle on this thing, here we go again. What, what's going on? How, what, what should we be aware of? What, what keeps you awake at night in that, uh, in that regard? And uh, explain your situation for us. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I really do appreciate this opportunity. I think the important uh, way of thinking of this Ebola challenge in DRC is that it is not simply a medical challenge. Uh, we've had great success in fighting off pandemics before, uh, but this is much more than that. This is a convergence of failures and dysfunction, quite frankly. It's a failure of institutions, it's a failure of, in many ways, democracy, with the lack of citizen-centered responsive governance in the affected areas. There's lots of community distrust, and quite frankly, we're seeing a uh, deeply disturbing uptick in violence targeted at outsiders, including healthcare facilities. Since January alone, there have been more than 119 violent attacks in the affected areas. 42 of them targeted at healthcare facilities. 85 health workers have been wounded or killed. And that shows you what, uh, what we're really dealing with. So the response that we must have is much more than solely a medical response. That, of course, is the core of what we must do. It is rebuilding community trust. It is rebuilding stability and security such that healthcare professionals can get into affected areas 
uh, but the most important thing it is bringing communities together so that they turn to those who can provide the life-saving vaccines that they need and that we can uh, mobilize in a containment strategy. But it, it worries me a great deal because, um, again, we've now seen four weeks in a row of record spread of the disease. Uh, if it gets towards a couple of key transit and population areas, uh, I'm very, very worried about it. Uh, Secretary Azar and I have each sent strong messages to the World Health Organization, the wonderful organization, Dr. Tedros is a friend to all of us, that this, uh, con this outbreak is not under control and that we must have a much more aggressive vaccine strategy. So uh, it is multifaceted, a number of failures, and I think it will take a broad-based response as a result. That's a pretty bleak picture. Are you um, cautiously optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Where, where are you on that? I'm always cautiously optimistic. Yeah. I will say that many of you know Admiral Tim Ziemer, uh, for a long time, the head of the President's Malaria Initiative. He is the acting head of our DACHA Bureau with humanitarian assistance. He is there as we speak, and we're just getting reports back from him. He's been able to eyeball some of the challenges because we really do want to make sure that we have a multifaceted a complete response to this. Um, you know, it's something that we've been talking about a great time, uh, for quite some time. It, it really burst onto the scene last fall, but you had intervening factors of uh, elections that, again, from my perspective, uh, were not the hallmark of a truly responsive um, uh, democracy in the sense that there were so many problems with it. In fact, the Congolese in the affected area were never able to even vote in these last round of elections. All of that to say that there's lots of distrust by citizens towards officials, institutions, and unless that's rebuilt, it's very hard to be able to bring people in and, and apply the vaccine that we know is a key part of preventing the outbreak and the spread. So I don't want to sugarcoat it. I think it is a deep challenge. And, and one that is truly worthy of the committee's attention. Thanks for shining a light on that. I've got some questions about your activities and how they intersect with uh, China's activities out there, but we'll uh, want to make sure everybody gets a shot at that. So we'll, we'll come back to that perhaps a little bit later with that, uh, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, <coughs> Administrator, uh, I'm glad you were talking about the Ebola outbreak uh, in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. As you said, it's killed more than 1,000 people projected to last to the end of this year. Community resistance and insecurity are major obstacles to bringing the outbreak under control. It's my understanding that uh, your agency is pivoting to a new strategy to improve community engagement and trust through development activities to foster access for health workers to treat and prevent the spread of Ebola. I'm concerned, however, that decision to suspend non-humanitarian assistance under the administration's strict interpretation of the, t of the trafficking in persons and DRC's trafficking in persons tier three designation is going to prevent uh, AID from successfully employing the strategy. Now, yesterday I introduced legislation to remove any legal impediments to that strategy. So let me ask you first, has the White House approved the strategy to reduce community assistance? 
Uh, decisions have not been finalized yet with respect to uh, the TIP designation, what? or the, the designation, sure, but in terms of, of funding decisions has not been finalized. But as it relates to the strategy, regardless of funding for the moment, have they agreed to the strategy that your agency has developed? On, on Ebola? Yes. Uh, it's still being finalized, uh, but I think it is, I think there is uh, increased awareness and, and we're pushing a much more aggressive approach. It's not been finalized yet, but... but What's the holdup? Um, the the holdup, I think, is, is making sure that we have full input from all parts of the U.S. government that will be required. Well, I hope we have a sense of urgency. Oh, it, 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 Senator, I do. And I, I'm not going to tell you that coming before a committee is a great experience that's full of joy and It's the and most pleasure. enlightening however, experience you could have. <laughs> however, I, I will say that... Uh, when um, senators like yourself come forward with legislation like this Ebola legislation, it is, from our perspective, welcome and helpful because it does raise the profile of the issue. It points out, uh, I think, very usefully that a more comprehensive approach will be taken. So we look forward to working with you on well, this. Well, I, I hope, uh, you know, I hope we can uh, move forward without the legislation, although I'm going to press it. Uh, but. I think that uh, the right interpretation in pursuit of our own interests would hopefully prevail. Uh, for two years, uh, from the President on down, the administration has called for continued engagement in Central America in order to address uh, factors forcing people to flee their countries, including the weak rule of law and high levels of criminal violence. The Secretary of State has submitted nine certifications to Congress confirming that Central American governments were making progress on these conditions. Mr. Chairman, I'd ask unanimous consent uh, to include the nine certifications and the USAID evaluation for the record. Uh, so ordered. And I hope the President and the Secretary of State review the administration's own records, its own records. So I'm not going to ask you whether you agree with the assertions the President has, uh, has said that these governments are purposely sending migrants to the north. I'm not going to waste time with that. But I do hope you can share for the committee, one, what are the root causes that we see people uh, fleeing and seeking asylum? And two, do you believe that the programs that you previously had been engaged in to provide and improve food security, expand economic opportunity, youth alternatives to gang and violent, uh, gang uh, alternatives, um, and the other elements of your program to create institutional capacity, uh, we're, we're headed in a direction that we're working. Thank you, Senator. Uh, first off, uh, I believe in our programs. Um, the, the programs, uh, imperfect, we can always do better and always do more. I think have been producing some good results, and I'm confident that they will be part of the longer-term answer. Uh, it's no secret that uh, we're all frustrated by the upsurge in numbers that we've seen recently. Uh, I saw that former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson said that this was a crisis by anyone's measure. Uh, we believe that our programs are most effective when we have strong partnership from host country leaders. Uh, the steps that are necessary to take, I believe, will involve our programs, but they're only successful, as we've seen in places like Colombia, where we have the full buy-in from the host country, and it's taking some of its own steps, oftentimes difficult ones. 
Uh, as you know, the, the Secretary and uh, Secretary of State and the F Bureau are in the process of doing a review of all programs and also the conditions under which uh, we'll all be able to continue. And we're very hopeful that we can pick up the work. I'll also say there are a couple of things that we've been doing. Uh, in recent months, one of the things that we've been doing is looking at apprehension data to make sure that our programs are specifically targeted towards those parts of the region that seem to be producing migrant flows. Secondly, we've been developing performance metrics in our grants and contracts with implementing partners that will uh, make reduction of those numbers a specific performance metric. And so we'll be partnering more closely with our partners, including the private sector, and hopefully uh, bolster innovation. Uh, we think it's important work that needs to be done and, and, uh, and look forward to the opportunity to, to build on success and improve what we're doing. I appreciate that. But if we don't deal with the root causes, we're not going to meet this. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, welcome, Administrator Green. It's great to have you here at the committee. Uh, I've heard from our military leaders about the unsustainable losses that are facing the Afghan military. Uh, and uh, I've also heard that the war is essentially at a stalemate. In February, then CENTCOM Commander General Vodal said, quote, Afghanistan continues to suffer from weak institutions and a political environment marked by a lack of unity on core issues. So that's a, a frustrating statement uh, for really all Americans after 17 years of engagement in Afghanistan, especially when we know our success there ultimately depends on some sort of political resolution. Uh, while some view the peace talks and reconciliation with the Taliban as a positive step, um, I understand the situation is very complicated, but I, I'm reserving judgment, especially in light of the fact that the Afghan government isn't party to those talks. Um, Mr. Green, in, in your view, how is our mission in Afghanistan going? Uh, well, first, I, I'd like to take a moment just to, to pause and, and express condolences and concerns. It was an attack last night that we all read about in Afghanistan, uh, still learning more about precisely what happened, but, but it's a reminder to all of us of just what a challenging environment that we see there. Uh, the Secretary of State directed us to go through, to be part of a posture review and the size of our footprint, State Department footprint, interagency in Embassy Kabul. And, uh, you know, we have uh, provided information. I know that review is being finalized. We will consult with all of you when that is completed. Um, you know, we continue to work through the country development cooperation strategy that uh, all of you have seen and approved of. Uh, we view our work as, as crucial for supporting peace. Secondly, we think that we need to continue to find ways to strengthen citizen responsive governance and citizen-centered governance so that, that people have a, a, a investment, political and emotional investment in institutions. Uh, we're con continuing to work to foster private sector inclusive growth one of the problems has always been that it, 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 a country that has mineral resources 
but doesn't necessarily produce inclusive growth such that a large number of people are invested. And then finally, what's crucial to the success in Afghanistan, in our view, is women's empowerment. So it's empowering uh, young women and girls to get uh, an education that ties them to their country and the outside world and gives them skill sets, uh, strengthening the tools for women entrepreneurs so that they have greater control over their own future and, and again, produce that economic inclusive growth. So that's where our work is. It's hard. Well, can, it's, it's extraordinary. I want to get to brass tacks because our time is limited. So um, you, you, you mentioned citizen involvement and inclusive growth and involving uh, working through the private sector wherever possible. Um, how, how are USAID's efforts advancing that? You mentioned you're, you're reducing the footprint, but um, your, your programming right now is advancing citizen involvement uh, in, in through what activities? Oh, again, uh, working to strengthen local governance institutions and empowering women to participate in the political process. Uh, the great challenge are the security costs. I, mean, the, the, I just want to yeah. point out, and it's not a sure. criticism of you. Um, no, I, no, actually, no. I think no one's better equipped to have this position than, than you right now, uh, and, and it would take a lot to disabuse me of that notion. But I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, we're negotiating with the Taliban. The government isn't even involved. The Taliban, I think, has different views on women inclusiveness, women empowerment, than uh, even the Afghan government does. I, I, I know the cultures are, are very distinct from ours. Um, we don't want uh, to be unrealistic in, in our goals there and what can be achieved, but um, I, I'm, I'm gonna have to get more clarity from you and your staff about exactly how we're specifically trying to empower women. In terms of inclusive growth, um, poppy cultivation, according to the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, the recent release of the 2019 high-risk list says USAID will no longer design or implement programs to address opium poppy, poppy cultivation. Um, so that that's their major private sector sort of, of cash crop is opium production right now, and, and uh, clearly we need another alternative. Uh, I don't know if anyone sharpened the pencil just to see if, I, I know we've tried wheat uh, in, in the past, uh, substituting wheat, a much lower margin product than, than opium. And, and we have, and that's a big part of our work, is working right. on uh, value chains for agricultural and horticultural pro uh, products. In the case of empowering women, the, the biggest thing, there are 107,000 Afghan women were educated who were not before the work that so we So I guess doing. the key challenge for this committee is we oversee these activities and try and work with you to uh, ensure that you meet with success in achieving those goals uh, around good government, citizen involvement, inclusive growth. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, as the United States looks to reduce its presence, and um, I'm hopeful we're thinking critically about reducing our presence at some point, 17 years in, how we can, um, how we can consolidate those gains we've made on those different fronts. So look forward to working with um, you on it very much. I only had five minutes. I was generously given six plus. And, and so, uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you. Thank you, Senator Young. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Administrator Green, I think you understand that there is a great deal of confidence in your leadership on both sides of the aisle in this committee. 
and a desire for our, this committee to work with you in order for you to be able to carry out your mission. It's extremely frustrating to see the type of budget support that you have received from the administration. And we recognize that in previous years, Congress has not followed uh, that guideline and have provided you the resources that are more realistic. But we also recognize we have to figure out strategies in order to carry out our missions. And I appreciate your response to Senator Menendez's comments on the legislation he's filed in regards to the health challenges we have on Ebola. And uh, I appreciate very much uh, Chairman Risch's comments about how we have put a priority on fighting uh, for American values, including fighting against uh, corruption. Your comment about having the help of host countries is critically important to carry out your mission. We recognize that. But it's been Congress working with your administration working with your agency that have set guardrails that helped you. Trafficking in persons is a clear example where we've given you clear guidance on how you have to respond to trafficking. In women empowerment with the WE Act, we gave you clear direction on where you need to, to work with us. And I think it's been very positive. And I hope this Congress will give you clear direction on fighting corruption, uh, legislation that I've authored with Senator Young. Uh, that passed this committee last Congress that we're working on and filed this week, last week to, to give you clear direction that as you're working with host countries, we cannot tolerate corruption uh, uh, and that we need good governance. So we look forward to working with you on, on those particular issues. I, I want to sort of drill down on some of the, the real challenges that we know we have and how you're going to be able to respond recognizing the lack of support you're receiving on the, from certainly OMB on the budget numbers, how you're going to use the resources to fight. This committee uh, authored in the last Congress a report on Russia's activities in Europe. We now have the Mueller report that clearly identifies Russia's attack on democratic institutions here in America. We have the One Belt, One Road initiative from China where we know clearly they're trying to impact democratic institutions and using their economic power to do that. And then we see the president's budget cut democracy by uh, democracy programs by almost 50%. And we see this, the cut in Europe and Eurasia by 54%, which is Russia's primary target. We see the, the cut in East Asia and Pacific of 14%, which is China's pr principal target. Reassure us that we will work together to use the tools that you have to strengthen democratic institutions, particularly in countries in which we have bilateral programs in which Russia and China are targeting uh, for uh, democracy uh, uh, erosion where we need to strengthen democracy. Uh, Senator, thank you for the question. Uh, you know, I, I do view uh, our relationship, the relationship between the agency and all of you, Congress, is extraordinarily important. Uh, I, I believe in the open dialogue. I believe in the constructive discussion of how we develop responses. You have my full commitment I mean, because it's, it's vitally, it's the only way we succeed. When it comes to China, Russia, democracy, there are no priorities that are higher for me. So on the democracy front, I'm an old democracy warrior from my IRI days. But secondly, beyond that, 
none of our investments are truly sustainable if we aren't fostering citizen responsive governance. They won't last, and so we have to focus on that. We develop clear metrics in our, the roadmaps we have country by country that focus on democracy. We're elevating democracy in our work with one of the new bureaus, terrifically important. We will unveil in a few weeks' time our countering Kremlin influence framework. And what we are trying to do is to counter that country by country predatory strategy that the Kremlin undertakes, looking for weaknesses, particularly in Europe and Eurasia, you're right. So we focus on such things as independent media and media literacy, uh, energy independence, so we can help these countries not be so dependent upon, uh, upon Moscow. Uh, we look to help fight corruption and foster transparency so citizens have greater trust in their government. And when it comes to China, you know, I've been, been very clear. Uh, I've pushed back on the notion that some have put out there that uh, this is the era of great power competition. I don't like that term because it suggests that this is a game and we're on the same field and playing by the same rules and looking for the same goals. It's not true. We do foreign assistance and development. They do predatory financing. We try to partner with countries and help lift them up so they can join us as fellow donors, and the sooner that can happen, the better. They, of course, are looking for the opposite. They hope to make countries subservient and forever dependent. And I don't think we can talk about it often enough. And so from the Indo-Pacific strategy to the work that we will do as an agency in our messaging, you have my commitment to work with you on this. I think it should be one of our nation's highest priorities. I thank you for that response. Thank you, Mr. Green. That was about as clear an enunciation of where we are as far as uh, our relationship with China today. Thank you so much for that. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I want to associate myself with all the remarks you made about uh, Mr. Green. He is an outstanding individual. I worked with him in the House as a member of the Congress. I've worked with him in Africa. I've worked with him everywhere. He is terrific, and I want to commend you on coming up with a new name, Predatory Predatory Financing. I, as a real estate developer, I know what that means, but I now also know what it means in food security and other things like that as well. But let me be quick, quick because we do have a couple of votes I need to get to. Number one, I, I'm, food security is something I've worked on a long time. I know that you are a big supporter of food security and understand the global challenges that we have on food security. I also noticed that in the proposal here, USAID's food security program will be combined with other programs to form a new Bureau of Food Security and Resilience. Will that help us in delivering our deeply needed help in food security around the world? Uh, it will. It'll make us more nimble, more responsive. Uh, you know, we're the largest humanitarian donor in the world by far, and, and no one else is close, particularly on the food security side. What we've been trying to do, and we will do with the new Bureau, is also add to it some of the resilience elements that hopefully get those countries to a place where they're less dependent upon our humanitarian food assistance. And part of that is some of the very successful tools that come from the last administration on Feed the Future. Some of those investments where we harness the expertise of U.S. academic institutions and agribusinesses, if we can apply those to some of the challenges, I think it, it helps us all in the long run, gets us away from having to uh, perpetually be a humanitarian donor and can help them these other countries take care of themselves. 
Well, fighting hunger is a tremendous asset in bringing about security and independence and a good life for people around the world who don't have it. So I'm a big supporter on that, and I hope this will help in doing so. On the uh, Ebola, I want to go back to your alarm stated calmly but distinctly. I'm worried, too. I, I represent the state that has Hartsfield International Airport in it. So many places, we have CDC, we have Emory University, the first Ebola outbreak. Most recently in Liberia, we were at the headwaters with that, and we're successful in stopping it. I, I get the distinct message, not necessarily subliminally, but directly, that because of the conflict in the DRC, because of the lack of security in the DRC, the lack of coordination in the DRC, we're at real risk of having an outbreak that will get larger and bigger before it gets smaller. Are there things that we can do to help stop that or make that situation less likely? Uh, yes. First off, to, to is a confidence-building message. Let me be clear that we work very closely with the CDC. Uh, their medical expertise is second to none. And so we are closely working with them in the field. Uh, I think also part of the answer are some of the measures that the chairman has talked about and, and are in Senator Menendez's bill, or at least referred to, and that's taking a kind of a comprehensive approach. When you're, you're fighting a pandemic in a setting like this, you need to build trust in a community so that they're willing to come forward and to, to uh, rely on those tools that we provide. If people aren't willing to come forward or if people go in the opposite direction when we show up or anyone else shows up, we'll never get the pandemic under control. So um, it, it's going to require that kind of a response. That's why CDC, USAID, and state have to be joined together. We each bring tools to this, and we need to work closely together. And, and I think you'd hear from Dr. Redfield at CDC that we're in constant communication, and both of our teams are there right now. Uh, trying to do a full-on assessment that we'll I've come heard. back to you with and give you a further briefing. I've on. heard just that from Mr. Redfield, and I appreciate y'all's cooperation and coordination on that because it's critically important to see to it that we do what we need to do in the future. And I want to end by just making a, a comment. I watched you at work in Tanzania when you were our ambassador, and I watched you work, your work with PETFAR and putting people to work and getting partnership attitudes between two countries and two governments to deliver PETFAR throughout that country at a less expensive, more effective rate than anywhere in Africa to begin with. So I want to, your natural ability and inherent like for partnership is going to be the asset that brings us in food security and health security a long way, and I appreciate your service. If we can help any way, please let us know. Thank you, Mark. Thanks. Thank you. Wouldn't be there without the tools that all of you have provided, quite frankly. Thanks. Thank you. Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Administrator Green, for being here today and for your service to the country. Um, one of the prime recipients of USAID in Europe has been the Ukraine since the Russian seizure of Crimea in 2014. Um, and one of the areas of our focus has been on trying to address corruption there. Um, as you have so rightly pointed out, a stable, prosperous democracy is the best way for us, um, for countries to better use assistance that we are providing and that other countries are providing. But I was really troubled recently to see high-ranking Ukrainian officials, such as Prosecutor General Yuri Lutsenko, publicly criticize our leading diplomats and further troubled to see his false allegations begin to circulate not only in Ukraine, but in right-wing media here in the United States. 
So how does USAID ensure that US foreign aid in Ukraine supports legitimate reformers who are really working to fight endemic corruption? Uh, thank you, Senator. First, first, as a general matter, what I uh, often point out, the best way to push back on the Kremlin is success in Ukraine and in the neighborhood. That's the one thing that his people can't tolerate, and that is seeing democracy and markets work and women's empowerment. In terms of our programs, focusing on um, tackling corruption is the central piece to our work because it's, it's creating that, that investment. As you know from these last elections, people spoke pretty clearly, and they were absolutely fed up with corruption and lack of right. responsive institutions. They want to see change. We're helping to power that change. E-governance is a big part of what we've been able to do. Uh, and also, we have a success story from the elections themselves. USAID funded some cybersecurity tools that helped the election commission in Ukraine push back against intrusions from Moscow into the elections that we all knew were likely to occur. I had an opportunity to meet with the mayor of Kiev yesterday, Vitaly Klitschko, and we were talking about ways, first off, he's helped to, to foster some anti-corruption institutions, transparency-based, but looking for new ways. The more we can use e-governance, the more we can push back on, on, on old institutions and bureaucracy, I think that's crucial if we're going to see um, popular support for the uh, reformers in Ukraine and also their continued success in moving towards Europe. Um, well, I hope you will also help push back against false stories like the ones that have been circulating out of Ukraine about our diplomats. Um, I want to go on. I appreciated very much your comment to Senator Young about the importance of women's, women's empowerment and stability in Afghanistan, and particularly post-any-peace post negotiations, the important role that women will play. I had the opportunity yesterday to sit down with Ivanka Trump and review the administration's forthcoming Women, Peace, and Security strategy that is the result of legislation Senator Capito and I sponsored that was signed into law in 2017. And it now requires that we have a strategy for having women at the table in any post-conflict negotiations. One of the things that I hope you will support is the importance of having women at the table as we look at any peace negotiations that go on with respect to the Taliban and the Afghan government. And hopefully you're prepared to do that and you're prepared to officially um, implement this Women, Peace, and Security Act. Uh, Senator, thank you, and yes, we're in the final stages of its approval, the strategy released publicly. But you're precisely right. History tells us that the best way to produce sustainable, lasting, peace and effective governance is to make sure that women had their seat at the table. So we certainly agree. I just got back from Afghanistan and I met with a number of women leaders and they said two things to me that I thought were very powerful. First, they want peace. There's no doubt about it. As you know, Afghanistan has had 40 years of war, but they don't want to lose their rights. Um, they said, we want to see the Afghan constitution that was put in after the overthrow of the Taliban um, that preserves human rights for all Afghans, but 
particularly for women, we don't want to go back to that time when women couldn't work, when there was no freedom of movement, when women couldn't go to school, when girls couldn't go to school. That is not a future stable Afghanistan. Moving back to the past of those days and that kind of, of uh, demeaning of women and, and marginalization of women also restores the very conditions that led to the crises that started all of this. So we're with you. We're proud of the work that we have done to empower women economically, educationally, and that's the work we plan to keep doing. Thank you. Thank you very much for your effort. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Good to see you. Uh, uh, Mr. Ambassador, thanks for spending some time in my office with me. We discussed, um, uh, we discussed the humanitarian plate in Yemen uh, in my office, and I wanted to follow up on the record with uh, a question or two, as I noted to you. Um, in uh, my recent trip with Senator Romney to the region, all of the partners that work with you in Sana'a flew into Amman, Jordan to meet with our delegation to uh, give us some devastating news. And that news was that there are 250,000 Yemenis who are so sick and so malnourished that they are beyond saving. Uh, a quarter million Yemenis are likely to die in the coming months uh, because of the famine uh, and the a spread of disease that exists both in Houthi-controlled territories and in coalition-controlled territories. Um, we have been a major humanitarian partner in the efforts to save these lives, notwithstanding the conflict, $720 million in assistance over the last two years coming from the U.S. Treasury. But this uh, FY 2020 request specifies only 41 million dollars in total bilateral aid to Yemen. Um, Help me understand that number um, and whether I'm reading the budget request wrong. Are we going to see a diminution in our humanitarian assistance to Yemen in the coming year? Uh, Senator, I don't have the precise budget figure on Yemen, but let me say this. Uh, we'll not walk away from our humanitarian role there. Uh, again, as you know, as you rightly pointed, 721 million in humanitarian assistance in Yemen, 692 million of that comes from USAID. We continue to work closely with all the NGOs that are working there. I met yesterday with uh, Carolyn Miles from Save the Children, and yet today, at the end of the day, I'll be meeting, as I do regularly, with all the international NGOs that are working in Yemen. And a few days ago, I spoke with the World Food Program by phone just on another assessment there. All of the dark things that you have characterized there are true. I mean, this is a, a humanitarian catastrophe. And in some cases, the level of suffering you know, is not irreversible or is not reversible. It's not something that we can immediately turn back on. And it will have long-term consequences that are, are dark and sad. We won't walk away from our humanitarian role. And you had testified in the House that the, the conflict itself was what's blocking humanitarian assistance. Uh, I would tend to agree, and, and our humanitarian partners tend to agree, um, but I would just reinforce what we discussed in private, which is that um, notwithstanding the settlement of the conflict, there are steps 
um, that both sides can take in order to um, improve the situation for Yemenis on the ground. I will say, though, that we are only party to one side of the conflict, and so we have much more impact over the side of the conflict of which we are a member, and there are certainly steps that our partners can take to release money into the economy, to free up the bureaucratic hurdles that still exist to this day on uh, humanitarian assistance getting into the Red Sea ports. Um, we can take steps, even notwithstanding the political process, uh, to ease the flow of humanitarian aid into that country, correct? Uh, Senator, uh, yes. So first off, as a point of clarification, the 41 million, had a note given to me, is only the, only, it's the development assistance part of our request. It does not reflect the humanitarian assistance that we will naturally provide. But um, secondly, you are correct in that both sides have steps to take. That is absolutely true. Part of the reason that we meet with Deputy Secretary of State John Sullivan and I regularly with representatives of all the key international NGOs and uh, UN family is, to, quite frankly, is to learn about those impediments that weaken the effectiveness and raise the costs. And then what we try to do, and state obviously takes the diplomatic lead here, is to push those to ease the burdens in delivering assistance. Um, uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I had a question um, that I wanted to ask uh, about the impact of the cuts to the Palestinian Authority that is probably too complicated for the time that I have remaining, so I'll make it for the record. I'll just use my final 20 seconds uh, to note that on this trip, uh, Senator Romney and I also visited Iraq, and there is a um, great fear in Iraq that the failure to resettle displaced populations and to rebuild the portions of the country that were destroyed in our fight along with the Iraqi army and militias uh, to root out ISIS will be, in fact, the ultimate invitation for these Sunni extremist groups to re-emerge. Uh, and there are rumors that um, we are going to um, cut our humanitarian assistance uh, and development assistance into the country. It still represents only about 20% of our total spend there, which seems to me uh, to, uh, to, to be a, um, um, an unthoughtful apportionment of dollars. Um, but I will just state the imperative of continuing and increasing our development and reconstruction assistance to Iraq. If we do not make that commitment, if we do not signal our long-term commitment to that funding, um, it will provide an impetus for an already strengthening ISIS inside Iraq uh, to make the case to Sunni populations that it is its only protector. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, I have you all to myself. Okay. Uh, we're in the middle of votes, as I'm sure they've told you, so hence all the movement. So let me, let me start, just take off from the point of, of Yemen. I think we're all concerned about the humanitarian crisis there and, and recognize, I think it's over, we're upwards of $230 million or so that we've provided so far in that. What's it, the number? In Yemen, it's $721 million. Oh, wow, okay, perfect. So my question to you is the following. It's still an active conflict zone. Theoretically, just as an example, if the Houthis, uh, I would suspect or I would know at the direction, let's say, of the IRGC and the Quds Force and, and Soleimani were to conduct attacks, say, in Saudi Arabia, against Saudi Arabia, as they've done in the past, or against U.S. interests in the region, for example, uh, the U.S. Navy or even commercial shipping vessels, that would elicit necessarily a military response 
Um, if you could describe, I, I think we could all sort of sense what that would do for the humanitarian efforts that are going on there. But, but any sort of active attack by the Houthis, especially at the direction of Iran, against either Saudi interests, which would elicit a Saudi response, and God forbid against U.S. interests, which would elicit a devastating response, uh, would dramatically exacerbate, and I would imagine Im significantly impede, if not stop, efforts to provide aid um, to, to the people who so desperately need it. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I guess a couple of points. Uh, obviously, as to the diplomatic and security situation, I would defer to the State Department uh, they're the ones who can give you the best characterization of where they see uh, the posture of that situation. However, on the humanitarian front, we all recognize that uh, even at best, what we are trying to do is treatment, not cure. That a long-term political settlement, a cessation of hostilities, A, is crucial to being able to get in to provide life-saving medicine, to provide life-saving food assistance, and I, I, some have characterized very effectively how dire the need is, but in the long run, it's getting in to restore some uh, reemergence of the social compact between citizens and leaders of ministries and local institutions that will provide some kind of stability and predictability. So. Uh, humanitarian assistance or the humanitarian assistance agency, but we recognize that diplomacy and development and obviously security in a secure setting are the only way that we can produce long-term yeah, I results. guess the point I was trying to drive at is if the Houthis truly care about humanitarian assistance reaching the people who desperately need it, attacking the United States on the orders of Iran or allowing the IRGC to operate from space they control is not the best idea if, in fact, they care about humanitarian assistance. We need a cessation of hostilities, including missile and UAV strikes from Houthi-controlled areas. I mean, we just have to have that. And then subsequently, the coalition air strikes must obviously cease in all populated areas. Those are the two steps that we need to be able to effectively deliver humanitarian relief. And a, an escalation of the conflict by the Houthis by targeting targets inside Saudi Arabia or targeting the United States would run counter to a cessation of hostilities. A, an escalation of hostilities is a very bad thing for innocent people on the ground who are trying to desperately get those medicines. Um, pivoting to Venezuela, I know you've spoken about it in your opening statement. I, I think it's my understanding, and, and perhaps the numbers have been updated, that last year Colombia spent over a billion dollars dealing with over well over a million migrants. If you could, they are our strongest counter-drug partner in the region, one of our strongest allies in the region. How, how would you des uh, describe, whether in numbers or in just general terms, the impact that the instability in, Colum in Venezuela is having on Colombia, both from a cost and societal perspective? Uh, it's one of, sadly, it's one of the most undercovered and underappreciated aspects to this conflict. Uh, I've seen uh, reports suggesting that Colombia's economic growth, while still positive, has been reduced by 0.8%, just as on the basis of the, of the burden uh, of the uh, uncontrolled migrant flow. But um, I'm heading back down to the region in a couple of days' time. There's so many things that we're working with President Duque on that we're going to raise the profile of. 
But this is a dark cloud that certainly threatens uh, their future. It, as we talk about humanitarian crises, we have the obvious ones that we all recognize, and then we have the narcos running around the place. So we have on top of everything else this extraordinarily unstable situation in which the Venezuelans are, are providing safe harbor to bad guys who impact the ability of Colombia to take on some of their longstanding governance challenges for peace and reconciliation. So it, it is a, a, a terrible threat to Colombia. I'm very impressed with President Duque. I'm impressed with his plans. I'm impressed with what they're trying to do and their generosity and, and hospital hospitality towards Venezuelans, but they need our help desperately. Yeah, one of the things I'm growing increasingly concerned about is a number of uh, Venezuelan military and National Guard defectors that are currently located inside of Colombia, and the Colombians have shouldered the cost of housing and providing for them. But their situation, we get mixed reports that they were evicted from the hotel, that uh, th these folks stepped forward and did the right thing in supporting the Constitution. Uh, who is I guess the who is what are the plans or what are discussions are occurring in terms of dealing with that group particular of, of the military defectors that now find themselves inside of I say defectors the military officials that have joined the rank and file soldiers that and, and guardsmen and police officers that have joined the legitimate government who is taking care of them what plans are in the works to address providing for them a way forward. Senator, uh, in terms of formal plans, they've not been completed or finalized yet, so I, I don't have much to tell you on that front. What I can tell you, what I can say, is that we're in touch with uh, Guaido's people all the time, continuously, and it is something they're very much aware of, as are the Colombians with whom we speak uh, continuously. So we're working to forge plans driven by them that uh, deal with this challenge and others. Um, it, it's, it, these are obviously changing numbers all the time, but it does, it represents another uncertainty that impacts the situation. Yeah, I, I would just say that the United States, as my view, has an obligation to contribute to that effort, and I hope we can work with you and with the administration to make it happen. Multiple administration officials, members of Congress, myself included, actively called for these individuals to do what they did, which is not to kill innocent civilians and to come forward. They did so a great personal risk, in many cases a great personal price for their families that were left inside of Venezuela. And, and I just personally believe that we do have a moral obligation to contribute to not just money, but some plan for them to have a way forward and not just simply to be stuck there on, on the Colombian side with no, no sort of future prospects. Um, I see that I've been ready. All right, Senator Kane. Thank you, Senator, and thank you, Administrator Green. I share comments raised by others that uh, you have the confidence of this committee. We are very appreciative of your work, but my questions are going to focus on what I think is difficult about your job right now. Um, March 28, 2019, Thursday, the DHS put out this press statement. Secretary Nielsen signs historic regional compact with Central America to stem irregular migration at the source confront U.S. border crisis. 
and I'm just going to read the first paragraph of the press release. Secretary of Homeland Security Kirsten Nielsen traveled to Tegucigalpa, Honduras, where she met with security ministers representing the countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. The multilateral discussions mark the continuation of a multi-year diplomatic process and the signing of a historic memorandum of cooperation on border security cooperation in Central America. I would like to introduce this press statement of DHS for the record. Without objection. That was Thursday, March 28. Friday, March 29, at Mar-a-Lago, President Trump said he was mad at the Central American nations for not doing more to stop a border crisis, and he said we're not going to give them any more money. On Saturday, March 30th, Reuters, the United States has cut the title, U.S. Ending Aid to El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras Over Migrants. The United States is cutting off aid to El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, known collectively as the Northern Triangle, the State Department said on Saturday, a day after President Trump blasted the Central American countries for sending migrants to the United States. I'd like to introduce this article for the record, if no I objection. might. Two days. The DHS announces a historic memorandum of cooperation with the three nations and the press release goes on to cite all of the elements of cooperation that we're going to be engaging in with these nations to stop the border crisis. Within 24 hours, the president said he's mad at these nations and we're going to cut off funding. And then on Saturday, two days later, March 30, the State Department announces all funding to these nations are being cut off. Mr. Ginning got a series of questions about this. As USAID administrator, were you aware of the fact that DHS was involved in lengthy discussions with the governments of the Northern Triangle countries around a memorandum of cooperation to stop migration flows? Uh, we had some awareness. We did not participate in those discussions, but we certainly Obviously, that's in the DHS side of the family. You're in more of the State Department side of the family, but you were aware of those discussions. And I, I, I don't think it would be unfair to say that if you were aware of those discussions, it's likely the case that the Secretary of State was also aware of the discussions that the DHS was engaged in. Is that fair? I can't speculate, but I would assume Sounds reasonable. Had aware. Do you know whether the President was aware of the discussions or the signing of the historic accord that his own Cabinet Secretary put out the statement about on March 28th? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have awareness. I have been very critical of this administration for blowing up diplomacy. I think backing out of the Paris Accord was a bad idea. I think backing out of the UN Global Compact on Migration was a bad idea. I think backing out of the JCPOA was a horrible idea, potentially leading us closer to an unnecessary war. But I have, I think, been wrongfully asserting that the administration wants to back out of diplomatic deals that were deals done under President Obama's tenure. This is an example. When on Thursday, March 28, the Trump administration announces a compact with the three Central American nations, and in less than 24 hours, the president is announcing that he's suspending all funding to those nations to do exactly what we want them to do, I have deep questions about how decisions are being made by this administration. I have confidence in you. You're going to make the best out of 
what you were given, and you testified in response to Senator Menendez's questions earlier that you're not backing away from any of the programs, and hopefully we will find a way to continue these programs. But the suspension of aid to these nations within two days after we reached a history, it's, an, it's in President you know, Trump's administration's own words, it's a historic accord, a historic accord to stop immigration and we suspend funding. I conclude that this president must be pro-caravan. He, he, he likes to say he's against caravans, but maybe he actually likes caravans because it gives him something to run his mouth about and run his Twitter account about. If this administration was against migration flows from Central America, they wouldn't blow up their own diplomatic deal within 48 hours after announcing it following multi-year, a multi-year process with these nations. And it raises real questions. Why would you, as another nation, want to partner with the United States? If, if, if you will sign a historic deal with the United States and the United States will unplug it within 48 hours, why would you want to be a partner of ours to stop migration or do anything else? I don't have any other questions, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome. Uh, Let's start by talking about Sudan. Um, as you know, last month in Sudan, President al-Bashir al was removed from power after three decades of brutal repression. Uh, there are worrying signs, however, that Sudan's new rulers are going to drag out any transition to true democracy, and perhaps indefinitely. In your judgment, what is the role of development assistance in building up Sudanese institutions? Uh, we are obviously very supportive of a transition to a peaceful and democratic Sudan. Uh, we think that uh, the people of Sudan have spoken loudly and clearly. They want to return to civilian government. And uh, we look forward to hopefully the day where we're able to uh, uh, support and strengthen just that. Do you anticipate any significant problems distributing aid or promoting USAID's mission under Sudan's current governance? We do provide humanitarian assistance now. We're the largest donor to the people of Sudan in terms of humanitarian. We provided over 250 million of humanitarian assistance in 2018. But again, as, as I've said before, humanitarian assistance is treatment, not cure. And that, that obviously is not the long-term answer. The long-term answer is fostering citizen responsive governance, and we think that's what the people of Sudan have been protesting for. And uh, we're all very, very hopeful, but also deeply concerned, as you've characterized. We need to see that transition occur. I think it's, it's important for Sudan and important for all of us. Yeah, I, I agree. Let, let, let's, let's shift uh, to Nicaragua. Uh, I'm also deeply concerned about the political trends in Nicaragua uh, and the Ortega regime. Uh, last year, uh, I passed legislation along with Senator Menendez and Congressman Ross Layton to impose targeted sanctions and restrictions on, on loans to Nicaragua and, and to mandate a civil society engagement strategy. Uh, the legislation was signed into law December 2018. Assistance plays an important role in our Nicaragua strategy, including democracy assistance. 
What is USAID's strategy for ensuring that our development assistance in Nicaragua is used in a way that pr promotes uh, our priorities and values? Thank you, Senator, and thank you for, quite frankly, for, for raising the issue of Nicaragua and focusing on it. We agree with you very strongly. Uh, uh, Ortega is uh, a brutal tyrant who has clearly shown no regard whatsoever, not only for democratic rights, but for the well-being of his own people. Uh, first, uh, I, I think we all need to salute the extraordinary courage of young Nicaraguan activists and democracy voices under the harshest of, of crackdowns, they have continued to be loud and clear on, on calling for democracy. We see ourselves as a crucial lifeline to them. And so uh, in the last year, we provided support directly to the Nicaraguan people, uh, 17.6 million for Nicaragua through uh, OTI, as we call it, transition initiatives to uh, promote, first off, to provide some civil society support and reinforcement, but provide some relief for these, uh, these folks. Also, uh, our voice has been consistent in calling for justice, rule of law, and a restoration to democratic order. Uh, we won't back down, just as the young people of Nicaragua will not back down. Thank you. Uh, let's shift to, to Venezuela. Uh, the history of development assistance in Venezuela has been a complicated one. For decades, Chavez, Maduro, and, and their thugs have used foreign aid as a political weapon. Meanwhile, the country has spiraled into catastrophe, which has required USAID to coordinate with other agencies and assets in the region, including Southcom. In your judgment, what steps can USAID take both in Venezuela and elsewhere, to ensure that badly needed aid is not diverted by regimes like the one in Venezuela? Uh, thank you. As to uh, Venezuela and assistance, I, I guess I'd offer a, a couple of things. First, uh, I want to thank all of you. I want to thank the members of this committee and this body for its support for our democracy assistance work in Venezuela over the years, both sides of the aisle. The uh, first time that I met Juan Guaido face-to-face, -face, I'd spoken to him once on the phone, but face-to-face, -face, he thanked me for that. That's what he thanked me for. He thanked me for the support that we have provided uh, to civil society, but in particular, the National Assembly. He's, of course, the leader of the National Assembly and thus the interim president. And that is a reminder to all of us of just how important these investments are. We need to stay engaged and support democracy, civil society, young democratic voices. And so first and foremost, we wouldn't be here if not for those investments, and I'm, I'm grateful. On the humanitarian side, it is an extraordinarily difficult situation, obviously. As we have mentioned, we have prepositioned assistance in a number of places. Uh, we welcome the announcement by the International Red Cross Red Crescent that they are trying to, to find ways to see that assistance can be delivered in country, not subject to diversion from uh, Maduro and his regime. And uh, I, you know, I can tell you more in a different setting, but we will make sure that our assistance does not get uh, politically weaponized as, it is, as assistance has too often in the past by Maduro. He's used it to punish enemies, to reward friends, 
and obviously we're not going to let that happen in terms of our assistance. Thank you. Thank you, and we thank you for your focus on that uh, particular point that you made uh, at the end. That's uh, incredibly important. Senator Coons. Uh, thank you, um, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez. Uh, thank you, Administrator Green. It's uh, great to be with you again. Um, let me continue on that point about um, the fragility of democracy in the world and the important efforts that uh, we make uh, to support it, um, not just in Venezuela, but in lots of countries around the world. Um, we spoke briefly at the IRI event last night. IRI is one of those um, organizations that are supported by um, taxpayer funds in order to help ensure that democracy and governance are uh, advancing around the world. Uh, NDI uh, and the other National Endowment for Democracy programs, uh, I think, are well worth our continuing to support. Um, I'm concerned about election security and ways in which um, increasing um, capacities for surveillance by um, authoritarian-leaning um, states um, ability to turn off the Internet, ability to use biometric databases to monitor and surveil their um, population, makes exactly the sort of work that we've done for decades um, through IFAS, uh, one of those key organizations, um, more freighted uh, because we are literally handing uh, regimes now a biometric uh, database of all their constituents. Um, we had long thought that the places where we most needed to invest in elections and democracy were the least developed countries that had the most um, um, ground to cover. Uh, in some areas, like Southeast Asia, uh, for example, or Eastern Europe, we're seeing interference in elections uh, by the Chinese, by Russians, by other actors um, that give me real pause. Um, are we developing election security toolkits? Are there things within democracy and governance uh, we should be doing uh, in light of uh, the ways in which our own last presidential election uh, was put at risk? Um, and what's your view on whether our democracy and governance funding overall is robust enough? Senator, I think you've uh, captured uh, some really important uh, decisions that we have to make and important challenges that we have to explore. You know, it's interesting, and I'm a democracy warrior from way back. You know, you look at 20 years ago, and uh, the battle we had was against authoritarians who opposed elections. They no longer oppose elections. Everybody supports elections. They just steal them and bend them and manipulate them such that long before you ever get to election day, it's over. And that's a challenge for us. I have asked my team, including my statutory advisory council, which has representatives of the various um, uh, democracy institutions in town, to develop a new framework to help us go after this. A lot has changed in that in those 20 years. The bad guys have tools. The bad guys are, are strategic. Notice that one of the first things Maduro did during those protests is shut down CNN and Espanol and close off the Internet wherever he could. We need to have a better response to that. The most important things have not changed. And what I mean by that is you could see it with the courage of those Venezuelans and the Nicaraguans and so many others. People want democracy. People want transparent governance. People want to have freedom of choice in their own future. As long as we have that element, we can figure this out. But we need to develop a different framework than we've got. Uh, I, I worry that if, if we continue to operate in the old framework, okay, we look at election day and, well, you know, the last couple of months uh, fund election observers, we're not going to be very satisfied. So I'm getting the institutions to help us develop a series of benchmarks that help us evaluate long before 
we get into the home stretch of an election. If we don't, we're going to continue to see, uh, particularly China, with the closed net uh, election systems and software they provide, they're going to continue to be satisfied and we are not. Thank you for your answer and your focus on this. Uh, I have two more questions. I'll, I'll ask them and then use what time you have left to answer, if you would. Uh, first, I'm just interested in the implementation of the BUILD Act, uh, the transition to a development finance a corporation. Uh, I think it was a significant uh, legislative accomplishment uh, by uh, this body in the last Congress and the Trump administration. And um, I just returned from a visit to China during the Belt and Road Conference. Um, having an American-led uh, response to the infrastructure needs of the developing world, I think, is urgent. Uh, I think it would be worth the time of this committee to uh, have you and David Bohegan and others uh, who are actively involved in this come back and uh, testify to us about how well we are doing at making it a development finance corporation, uh, one that has uh, measurable and responsible risk that is going to uh, be good stewards of taxpayer dollars but also deploy significant new amounts of private capital with a development focus. I'd be interested in your views on how that's laying out. And then last, I understand um, you've already spoken about Ebola and the DRC. I just wanted to commend you for your focus on um, Tropical Cyclone Adai and uh, Kenneth and the responses in Mozambique and express my real concern about the fragility uh, of the DRC in the region and uh, my gratitude to Senator Menendez for stepping forward and taking on a, a leadership role on tackling Ebola. Anything you care to respond to in what I suspect is 30 seconds. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. As always, thank you. Um, on, on Mozambique, as I said, we have, we have mobilized about 70 million. I uh, sent a team there, a 17-person disaster assistance response team, as well as my counselor, Chris Milligan, who has deep experience in the region. Um, a long way to go, but I, we're working on it. Additional challenge in Mozambique in the north the insurgent attacks are, are beginning to restrict our ability to get into some of those most affected areas by Kenneth, so we're watching that. Um, in terms of the DFC, I'm like you. I'm a, I'm a believer in the DFC, and I was long before I got to USAID. Uh, you've been very eloquent, and I think you've been on the mark. I think the most important questions that we need to answer, uh, we're working closely with OPIC, but as we go forward, to make sure that we have clear development impact so that these tools which we now use, Development Credit Authority, which are a vital part of, of, of bringing the private sector to bear on some of our great challenges, also building capacity and accelerating uh, private investment, but also making sure that we don't uh, duplicate unnecessarily institutions. We want to make sure that we continue to uh, USAID and the 80-plus missions that we're in around the world. You know, we want to help identify projects, uh, evaluate them, make sure that they have development impact, and then bring them to uh, the DFC with all of the financial tools and expertise that it has. So the integration, I think, is going to be key, uh, and that's what we're going to be working on in coming, coming weeks. If we do this right, it's a major tool in the toolbox. One thing I will say, it's not about the money in the sense of number to number with China and Belt and Road. It's what it produces. We believe in self-reliance. We want private enterprise. We want countries to lead themselves in the long run. China obviously does a very different thing. So, 
you know, we're not trying to mimic China. We're trying to do a very different model, and that's what I think we can get to. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Administrator. Thanks for your patience, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Kuhn. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, on climate change, I've been appreciative of USAID's uh, programs that have sought to improve resiliency among countries in the face of climate change. Uh, however, the administration's uh, fiscal year 20 budget uh, does not include funds for the Global Environmental Facility and an International Environmental Donor Fund. We have historically supported and does not identify any environment or climate-related priorities. The uh, Secretary of State's unwillingness to say if he prioritizes climate change in U.S. foreign policy and decisions by the State Department to remove references to climate change from international declarations, including this week's Arctic Council statement, reflects the administration's disregard for integrating climate change into how we address conflict mitigation, uh, <coughs> mitigation, migration, and displacement, and other humanitarian questions. Do you believe um, that climate change is a foreign policy priority that needs to be tackled? Senator, I'll, I'll let uh, Secretary Pompeo, uh, our top diplomat, talk about foreign policy uh, leadership. But what I can say, uh, we recognize, A, the climate is changing, and B, that we need to help countries deal with its consequences. So in our roadmaps that we use as sort of guideposts in our journey to self-reliance work, we have key metrics on biodiversity and, and the environment. We, we think it's awfully important. Secondly, we continue in so many parts of the world to develop tools, as you pointed to, resilience tools and others, to help countries deal with the fallout from changing climate and how it affects uh, governance, uh, self-sufficiency, and so on and so forth. That priority will continue for us. And, and I am very um, much uh, in respect of your commitment to foreign assistance, uh, but I think that the budget request actually reflects a lack of commitment to um, working on this issue and giving um, these countries the help they need to deal with the crime, uh, the climate crisis. I mean, it is a crisis for them. And uh, for the United States not to even make some kind of a statement in terms of its foreign policy objectives, I think is something that is heard overseas. And I think it's important for us to remedy that in our, in our, um, uh, in our national statements. Uh, and uh, let me just move on quickly. Um, despite some signs of progress in countries like Malaysia and Indonesia, we are seeing a number of troubling indicators on the democracy front in the Indo-Pacific, election interference by the junta in Thailand, the persecution of the Rohingya in Burma, human rights abuses in uh, the Philippine drug war, increasing restrictions on press freedom are all signs of democratic backslide. In previous East Asia subcommittee hearings, Corey Gardner and I highlighted the challenges posed by China's repressive authoritarian model, and that model is now being exported around the region. The administration's budget request for foreign assistance resources for the Indo-Pacific is to double the budget request from the previous fiscal year. However, it is still nearly $200 million less than the amount dedicated to the region in 2018. How can we effectively counter anti-democratic efforts in the region uh, if we still do not have robust funding to promote democracy and human rights in the Indo-Pacific? 
thank you, Senator, and, and particularly as you stated the question earlier on and surveying the scene in Asia, I don't disagree with you. I mean, those are, I think, I think that captures well some of the challenges that we're seeing. Uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy, our piece of the Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, is focused on three objectives, fostering economic growth, obviously, but uh, improving management of natural resources, that goes hand in hand with economic growth, but strengthening democratic systems. And so we're working to develop tools on media integrity and literacy. We are working to support um, civil society, uh, the missing voice of civil society, quite frankly, in parts of Burma, I think is, is one of the great challenges. And I think also being very clear about what we see from the imprisonment of the Uyghurs to, uh, in my view, nothing has caused me more despair than the Rohingyas who have been left behind in places like Sitwe. I think we should be clear-throated on those challenges. I, I will tell you that um, Senator Gardner and I are concerned because uh, ultimately these trends are being exacerbated and, you know, we, we were able to pass and the President signed the ARIA legislation last year. And we know how robust China is going to be and if we're not robust ourselves, then you don't have to be uh, a genius to figure out how this whole thing plays out. So uh, by under funding a lot of these programs, then we just wind up with the officials in these countries wondering, do we really care? And it's the money itself is, in fact, a statement that we would make. So I just encourage the administration to consider its commitments and ensure our funding is sufficient to match the magnitude of the challenge, because otherwise I'm afraid it's a losing strategy. Thank you, Mr. Thank President. you, Senator Markey. Senator Menendez. Thank you, uh, uh, Mr. Chairman. Administrator, uh, back in our February hearing, you expressed initial support for the importance of convening an international donor summit and for coordinating a truly international response to Venezuela as humanitarian and refugee crisis. Why hasn't this happened yet? Uh, it's still something that I personally support and think we should be doing. Um, two things. We continue to be in close contact with the Guaido's government and, and want to make sure that, that they prioritize it as well. Uh, beyond that, uh, we're still working with our partners at the State Department to get them fully on board. But as you know, I, I think it would, myself, I think it would be a useful, uh, a useful step. Yeah. I think it's... I'm sorry to cut you off only because yeah. I know we're going to have to go to vote, but internationalizing a, a donors conference so that we send a message to the Venezuelan people that there is a hope afterward. We have 53 I other nations put, joining yeah, with us, I think, tapping in. It's time for them to more than recognize Guaido. They need to yeah. uh, be part of it. Uh, so I'll press it with the secretary. Let me move to Ethiopia quickly. Um, assuming office just over a year ago, uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed undertook some pretty sweeping political reforms in the most populous country in the Horn of Africa. Uh, he freed thousands of political prisoners and journalists. He lifted the state of emergency. He allowed political opposition parties to return to the country. I mean, it's pretty uh, uh, remarkable. Under the, however, the transition remains fragile. If we continue to fail to support Abiy's efforts, the most profound political transformation on the continent may fail. What are USAID's conflict mitigation programs, activities related in certain areas and conflict zones in Ethiopia? What are the goals of these activities? How many people are they reaching? Give me a sense of what we're doing there. 
thank you, Senator. And it is interesting, if you would have told me a year ago that we'd be looking at the Horn of Africa as being the opportunity area in Africa, I would have thought you were crazy, but we are right, you are right. So in Ethiopia, we've been moving quickly. Uh, obviously, we continue to provide humanitarian assistance. We have 8 million people who are food insecure. But we have a number of programs that we're doing, pursuing it with the invitation of Prime Minister Abiy. Uh, we have additional funding that we've put in for democracy, governance, and human rights programs. We're also providing technical support to the Attorney General and Supreme Court to expand uh, those institutions so they are more independent in their decision-making and oversight capacity. Uh, we also have been supportive of civil society groups like IRI and NDI. They are now returned to Ethiopia. That's fairly recent. And they are trying to go back to their longstanding work to strengthen the democratic ethos at the community level. Uh, one of my great concerns is the fragility of Ethiopia politically. There are still ethnic tensions, as you know very well, and so we're looking to support institutions that promote reconciliation, but also give people the opportunity to sort of weigh in and have a constructive investment in government. Well, we want to follow up with you on that. And then lastly, I'm going to submit for the record a series of questions about rescissions. I'm deeply concerned that even though the Congress keeps rebuffing the administration on spending, we see program funds that are frozen in the Northern Triangle in Syria in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Pakistan, and a whole host of other things. So this thwarts the congressional intent that money is to be spent for these programs. And I am concerned about where rescissions are going. So I'm going to ask you that question, in the, and I'd like to get an answer in writing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, Mr. Green, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, this has uh, been one of our uh, more enlightening hearings. And uh, even though the uh, foreign assistance budget is one of the smallest slivers of the United States uh, entire budget, the federal budget, it really can't be measured in dollars. And uh, its impact is uh, critical for America and for American interests around the world. Um, we need your agency to be a, uh, a strategic, efficient, effective, and accountable. And uh, we're glad to have you there because we know you pursue and uh, those, those goals just, uh, just as we do. So uh, with that, uh, for the information members, uh, the record will remain open until close of business on Friday. Senator Menendez, is that long enough for you to? Absolutely. All right. To, we'll, we'll leave the record open until, until uh, close of business on Friday. We'd ask if you would get your responses in as quickly as possible as it helps us uh, uh, as we move forward. So uh, with that, uh, if I can find the gavel, we will close the hearing today. Thank you, me. Thank, Thank you, you much. The hearing is adjourned.